Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. We have um, a very interesting guest today, and this is a little bit of a departure from the type of book that we often do on this show, um, as you'll soon find out. John Milas served on active duty in the Marine Corps and deployed to Afghanistan in 2010. He later earned a BA and MFA in creative writing. He lives in Illinois, where he reads, writes, and watches baseball, and uh, I think does some other things too. And The Militia House is his first novel. Now, The Militia House is a horror novel combining gothic horror elements with modern-day warfare, and this uh, debut novel is garnering a lot of attention. Welcome to Writer's Voices, John. Thank you for having me. It really means a lot uh, to be on the show. Well, I'm very happy to have you. And one of the reasons that I um, did decide to invite you to Writer's Voices is because the Militia House is featured in the Booksellers Indie Next recommended brochure that I picked up at uh, Prairie Lights in Iowa City um, last week and it or a couple weeks ago. And it is... Um, recommendations from independent booksellers so that must be pretty exciting to to be in there to say the least uh yeah it's very surreal um <laughs> i was also on the uh the indies introduce list and we did the the ceremony for that earlier this week and it was just really it, it was a you know significant honor uh, to be a part of it and just very surreal to, to hear all these other talented writers reading from their books and, and talking, you know, <laughs> speaking to the work they've done and sounding so smart. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably thought the same about you. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this uh, brochure, the bookseller Wesley Minter from Third Place Books in Lake Forest Park, Washington, wrote, The Militia House ensnares the reader in its unsettling atmosphere. The commentary around the military-industrial complex and PTSD is subtle, casting a critical eye that never fully dives into polemic, a wild, immersive ride. So when you – you were in the Marines, correct? That's right. And you were in Afghanistan. At the time, were you thinking, I'm going to write about this someday? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I was actually writing about it at the time. Okay. Um, I was writing a blog, similarly to uh, to, to the narrator character. of the novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I was I'm all you know I've always been a person who has wanted to make things um, in an artistic way. When I was a kid, I I drew a lot, um, just pencil drawings. wasn't so much into coloring books as as much as I was into drawing my own, um, you know, illustrations. And after that, I um, uh, looking ahead, I had an ambition to get into the film industry and, you know, become a director as every uh, naive <laughs> child probably thinks. And there was, writing was always kind of at the, at the, uh, at the periphery. It's sort of, it's kind of, it doesn't seem ironic to, to say this, but my, my eighth grade, um, like third person biography that we wrote to put in our yearbooks, it actually says, and I wrote this myself, like John wants to be an author and a U.S. Marine. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Um, the, the thing that's <laughs> ironic about that—this is 20 years ago—is after eighth grade, I, I, I didn't really um, commit to those ambitions at all. <laughs> I, I, 
I actually committed to making short films and, and not really writing prose. And I think um, I will say, though, when I was serving in the military, it just became abundantly clear that um, I, don't, I don't know that I, I guess I just noticed a lot that other people didn't or I had questions that other people didn't. And so and it was more so in college, though, that I think looking back, I was like, you know, I I think I have a book in me about the experience. I wasn't quite sure what. And um, and then in grad school, uh, the militia house materialized, you know, from the ether. Um, so how much of your own experience did you bring to the militia house? That's a good question. Yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of details that are pulled from the, the real, <clears throat> excuse me, the real setting uh, where where I was stationed for about the final third of my deployment. Uh, the setting of the book is real. Um, you know, the job that, that the characters in the book do was my MOS uh, in, in the Marines. And uh, there, there are even some surreal moments that are pulled from real life. Um, there's a scene when, when the characters are very absurdly asked to fill out paper bubble forms in the dark while they're in earshot of a, of a firefight. That's a real thing that happened, and basically nothing about the scene in the book is embellished from how it went in real life. <laughs> I think those were the moments, you know, that I experienced thinking, man, I, I got to write about this someday, um, because if I don't, no one's ever going to know how absurd this whole situation really was for, for us who were there. Yeah. I'm talking about priorities. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a way, it's kind of surprising that there aren't more writers that are form that served in the military. You know, it's like Hemingway, of course, is um, a great example of someone who took war experiences and wrote directly about them. There's a lot written about war, but not always by the people who were actually there. Why do you think that is? That's a really good question. I, I, I can only speculate. I mean, I, I think probably one of the obvious reasons is I think many many veterans go through experiences that they might not want to revisit. Um, and I think another, another element there might be that they, the experiences that you go through in the military, um, you know, in active duty are not solitary. So maybe there's a lot of folks who come out of it and they think, well, you know, what I, what I did and what I saw wasn't unique or special. I was with hundreds of other people and who was going to care uh, to hear the story. All these mm. people know the story. That's just a guess. Um, really and yeah i i think also there's a there's 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 definitely a difference you know coming in um as a commissioned officer you've already gone to college so you have taken literature classes and english classes you know what writing is mm -hmm. to some degree whereas if you enlist you know and you haven't gone to college and you've you know maybe you don't haven't actually graduated high school maybe you have a ged i think there's a big difference um in that background and, and maybe what that background can inspire people to, to do with, with their experiences afterwards. So had you, were you enlisted or you came in as a commissioned officer? I was in, I was enlisted. I, um, okay. somewhat similarly to the, to the narrator, uh, I went to a college, I went to community college for a year then I enlisted, um, after that. Okay. And why did you do that? Why did you choose to do that? 
That's a great question. Uh, I was so from I kind of conceptualized this more recently, actually, but from from I think from the fall of 1993 to the spring of uh, 2008, I was a student in Champaign, Illinois. That was what I knew. And my plan in community college was to transfer eventually and go to go to film school to university. But I was so burnt out. And I want to say that I I had at least enough self-awareness at that time to know that if I did transfer, it wasn't going to benefit me or anyone around me. It was going to be just me um, out of gas mm. after just being a student and knowing only one thing and I didn't want to stick around, you know, I didn't want to go to school anymore. Uh, I didn't really have, you know, um, any crazy opportunities around my hometown either. So I didn't want to stick around and just sort of, you know, get an hourly job and work. I decided <laughs> it would be better to, to leave and go on, you know, a, an adventure, I guess, in a very reductive uh, sense. You know, the Marine Corps does not have bases in the Midwest, if you're on active duty, you are stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, Camp Pendleton, California, or Okinawa, with some exceptions, obviously. But that's where you go if, if you're in the Marine Corps on active duty. So I knew I would get to leave and go somewhere else and, and see something else. And the Marine Corps specifically, I really couldn't tell you when they sort of incepted me um, as a kid. But I knew also if I if I – uh, tried to join another branch and, and was successful and, you know, didn't try to become a Marine, I would have spent the rest of my life wondering if I could have done it. And how long were you in, on active duty or in it? Is it on or in? Oh, good question. Yeah, <laughs> prepositions are tough. Uh, I guess I say I was on active duty. Okay. Uh, I, I was I was enlisted from 2008 to 2012, and um, in the Marines, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but at that time, you actually you technically signed an eight-year contract where you were on active duty for four years, if you if you signed an active duty contract, that is, because there are there's also the reserves. But I was in for four years on active duty, and then there was another four years technically until 2016, where you know if World War III happened, they could have just pulled me up back and I did even have to travel um I had to cancel some plans uh on a on a Saturday actually because I got orders in the mail and I had to go to Indianapolis and I had to go to this big inactive <laughs> reserve muster it was a real pain frankly. Oh. <laughs> and uh, we got paid but I mean I would have paid them the <laughs> to let you out <laughs> to not have gone <laughs> yeah yeah are there things about that about being in the military that you really miss? I definitely miss um, the the camaraderie. You know, it's I think it's kind of an exaggeration that if you if you become a Marine, suddenly every Marine who has ever lived is now your like sibling in arms. Mm -hmm. It's not really that simple. You know, I, not everyone I served with is a friend of mine now or, or someone who I'm in touch with, but I really do miss the people and the commiseration is like really like nothing else I've experienced. You know, when you're a junior enlisted in a room full of, you know, 50 other, um, you know, Lance corporals or, or private first class, uh, there's so much commiseration about everyone above you. <laughs> and that's just very healthy to me. I think it's actually really healthy to have coworkers to, to complain about your job with, um, you know, and 
and I, I mean, also to some degree, it's annoying to always be around the people you work with because we lived in the same place. You know, we lived in the same barracks. We ate together. And but in but in another sense, I do kind of miss the familiarity. Um, you know, I'm I'm back essentially in my hometown now, but I I kind of feel like I don't know anyone here. Um, a lot of my friends are gone. Uh, Champagne Urbana isn't really a place where you try to stay for your whole life um typically so what why'd you come back i do like it here i i came back to go to school um i got out of the marines um technically a little bit early on a program that allowed people who were accepted to university um to adjust their end of active service date so it was very convenient to come back here and go to school i didn't have to transition to an unfamiliar place i was able to come home um, and, you know, being a college student was a big adjustment. It was not, it wasn't community college. And that's not to say community college was easy breezy, but stepping up as a transfer sophomore after four years of not, not being a student, seeing yeah. a textbook <laughs> was very, very difficult. That was the hard transition. And, uh, um, and yeah, I was, I was real excited. And what were you <laughs> studying when you, when you started? I studied creative writing. Uh, I I actually got accepted as an English major. Um, I'm not sure if you can actually apply as a creative writing major. And then I transferred in that following spring. So by that point, you knew what you wanted to do. To some degree, uh, in my first year back, I I actually had no idea what a master of fine arts was. I, I didn't know there was any opportunity where you could you know, in theory, get a stipend to just to write, uh, to just write fiction or poetry. So it was like later that I learned about that after having a, uh, an instructor who was an MFA student, um, a great, great teacher, uh, Sean McIntyre. I, I sat down with, with him and, and he sort of outlined, you know, what, what grad school could look like. And, if I would have known about that in advance, I would have tried to get through college faster, but I ended up actually taking a fifth year because I had four GI Bill years and one year down. So I ended up taking just 12 credit hours a semester while I worked actually part time. And, and so you, you took your time, but then when you so will the GI Bill help pay for a master's or not? Uh, it, there's a limited amount of of time you have to use it. But yeah, if I would have, I could have done just those three years of undergrad and and finished, and then I would have still had another year of it. Um, I don't exactly know that what that process looks like. Uh, I never went through it, but I know that if I would have tried to rush through a little bit faster, I could have maybe had more of a financial lifeboat in in my first year in grad school. Isn't it interesting that there was nobody there to like guide you through those opportunities. You would think that the VA or somebody would be helping people coming out of the military and saying, okay, here's all the things that you can do and here's and help you take the best advantage of it. To, to some degree that does exist. Okay. Um, when you're on active duty and you're getting discharged, you're, uh, required. I'm, I'm a, I would imagine every branch has this, um, but we were required to go to a class. Um, I, I don't remember the full name. We called it SEPs and TAMPs, and I forget. <laughs> it was like separations and something, 
and you would go, you would just wear civilian clothes for a week, which was why we loved it. <laughs> it was great. And you would show up to this classroom and there was a civilian who would kind of explain some of the transitional things from, you know, getting out of the military and go, going into the civilian world and they would tell us some of the opportunities for instance i think veterans qualify for like a year of unemployment for mm. instance that's okay. not something we would have known unless you know they told us right but yeah, yeah. That, it is true that there are a lot of there are veteran benefits that veter that are available but they ain't advertised and uh, <laughs> my favorite one is i was actually able to pay 600 extra dollars into the gi bill beyond the 1200 initial dollars that we had paid in and it, and that gave me a bigger payout all through college oh wow for just those 600 the only reason i knew about that was because a friend of mine somehow heard a rumor about it wow. and then we went to our admin building and sure enough it was it, it was available but wow there are not billboards that, that show you all <laughs> the things that you can take advantage of um, yeah you're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is John Milas, author of The Militia House. So from all of the kind of experience that you had in the Marines, how did the story of The Militia House come out of that? Well, it should just be said right away that The Militia House is a real haunted house, and it is located exactly where it's described in, in the book, if you know where to look, you can even see it on Google Maps, actually. Um, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So it so it came from uh, us going into the house, so, you know, sort of similarly to the characters in the book. Uh, the stakes in the book are escalated, you know, a little bit. For us, we it, it wasn't we weren't breaking any rules uh, when we you know went to to check it out, and um, it was I did not I, I have a photo. A couple photos of the outside. I didn't take a camera inside with me, but it was very, it was very unsettling. Um, I, I was kind of like the character Johnson in the novel, hearing the, the the stories of the 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 legends of it and thinking, sure, whatever. And when we went inside of the building, it was the the whole interior was just riddled with bullet holes, um, you know, clearly from like an automatic automatic weapons. It wasn't like someone came in and took pot shots. Something had happened inside of the building for sure so in this was 2010 and um i mean i you know have struggled to not think about my experiences in the war so all through college um i tried to write about the military and didn't really work so much that that work came through only as kind of angry ranting uh, i was still too close to the experience and I think the Militia House provided me with an opportunity as I thought about it more, specifically the summer before grad school. The Militia House, for instance, was my first short story that I turned into for grad school workshop, actually. There was something about being out of the military and having some distance between that and being in Afghanistan. And then, I guess, you know, implementing um, gothic horror it seemed to just give me enough distance to write about it in a way that I don't know. It, um, it really just tempered the kind of the ranting aspect that some of the earlier military writing I did, um, was so <laughs> preoccupied with. Interesting. So you, by adding kind of, um, it sounds like you actually had some 
supernatural experiences? No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I just will say that the, the experience of going into the militia house was very unsettling. And okay. So, <laughs> it certainly but, is a place I've never seen seen anything like it or been in a, a place that's like it, you know, anywhere else. Um, but by adding that supernatural element that gave it, that made it in a way easier for you to write about it? Somewhat, or? somewhat easier maybe, or more, maybe more appealing. Um, it, there have, there's been war writing, you know, for generations and, um, I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't know how many times those of us who go to war can continue to say that war is wrong in the same way. <laughs> yeah. Clearly yeah, the yeah. right people are not listening to us. <laughs> they haven't been for generations. And I guess, you know, adding this, um, you know, flavor, adding this genre, you know, into the mix with war writing, I think also is a way that I, I convince myself that, would be more compelling for readers. You know, we've, we've been reading Tim O'Brien forever and his writing is excellent, but we keep reading it. Yeah. We keep going back to it and we got to say something new in my opinion, something that's, different has to be said or no one's going to pay attention to it. That's a really good point because a lot of times I think fiction is a way to, to make a point, to be persuasive, to persuade somebody to a point of view that you would never be able to do in any other way. Yeah, I think it's about, for me, um, I, I guess, yeah, there, there, there's a persuasive rhetorical aspect, but I guess I, I'm not someone with a lot of answers as I'm here <laughs> in an interview. I feel like when I write fiction, what I'm doing is putting a, a magnifying glass up to questions that I have and, I'm not really the smartest person to be answering them, but hopefully readers who are um, will try to answer those questions. And, you know, the, the most ideal reader of this book would be a politician, in my, in my opinion. You know. Yeah, a lot of politicians. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, did I read something about that you that this book may become a film mm, um there is nothing um i i i have a, f a film rights agent but there um okay. isn't anything that i know of yet that's uh definitive okay all right so it's fun to think about though. It, it is because it would make a really good movie and Imagine. It'd be nice to give the story to someone else to handle too, like the director and the producer. You guys handle it now. Yeah. I've been working on it for years. You know? <laughs> How long did it did you spend writing the Militia House? Yeah, that's a good question. I, the The total time from starting it, I mean, would be like I, the first draft of the short story that I turned in was the fall of 2016, and I revised that story that year, and then kind of let it sit and. uh Starting in the fall of 2018, uh, I started working on it as my thesis uh, to defend in order to earn the uh, MFA. Um, and after graduating, uh, I essentially had a fourth year of grad school after that where I rewrote the book with my agent, completely rewrote it, 
Um, it was originally a pistolary, for instance. So I completely rewrote it and uh, then did heavy, you know, edits with my editor. So it's been years, you know, at least five, um, you know, six years or something like that at this point. Wow. What kept you going on that that story instead of going to something else? I think, well, I mean, to be fair, I, I'm never just working on one thing. So mm. I do kind of keep myself busy um, with shorter projects. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I ever like oversaturated myself with this novel, although I think it felt like that. Looking back, I think <laughs> I, I think I was just stressed out. Um, uh, yeah. One thing that really impressed me about the Militia House was the, <clears throat> I don't know, how real the details of the environment seem to be. And, and you know, there's, <clears throat> it starts out in a way, um, you know, there's some kind of slow sections where you're, you're conveying how really boring it was being there. And then there's these moments of, you know, incredible action and then, you know, very, and so that's a very, I think it's a, a difficult thing to convey sometimes the sort of the, what it was really like. I really got a feeling for what it must have been like to be there. Now, in, in the book, the um, Marines are coming in replacing British troops. And is that a common thing to have happened or? Yeah. Yeah. When I was, when I was there, um, I was at three different bases and, uh, all of those bases, which would include Camp Leatherneck. Um, I, I lived in Camp Leatherneck and I worked kind of across town at a big British base called Camp Bastion. They were sort of like connected almost as twin cities. Um, so that was, you know, at least 50-50 U.S. And, and British, if not a lot, many other countries. Um, I was at another base called Delaram, FOB Delaram 2. That actually, um, if I'm not mistaken, was eventually uh, taken over by the Georgian military, and they were actually arriving when we were there. So by the time I, I arrived um, in the Kajaki district at the FOB there, it was pretty normal to be seeing, you know, non-U.S. Um, military personnel. And we didn't always get to interact with with everybody. And, the, you know, language barriers obviously um, can make it difficult. But, you know, with with the, the, the British folks, it was pretty, pretty natural to to just engage them and always very, always very fun um, <laughs> to talk to someone who speaks your language, but has a whole different um, way of using it and all this vernacular. And I really wanted to, to, to capture that in, in the British characters um, in the novel. And I, I have a friend who's dating a, an English guy and he, he actually read an advanced copy and said he, he believed they were English. So that oh, that's good. I was nervous, really nervous <laughs> about it. People ask me, are you going to read the audiobook? And I'm like, no way. <laughs> British people. I, I can't do those accents. <laughs> So, is there going to be an audiobook? Or there is, there yeah. Is? It's um, it's it's uh, it was read by um, uh, Davis Brooks. I actually haven't listened to it, but I 
I did get access to it this week. I'm really looking forward to that. I heard some auditions and um, I, I, I'm really optimistic. I think it's going to be great. Another <laughs> example of, of um, kind of, I think that I think it's exciting to have an audio book to just see what a, a group of other collaborators will do um, with your work. Um, I'm really excited to see how they interpret it. You know, one of the things about, you know, you said you wanted to make films when you were younger and, you know, filmmaking is such a collaborative effort. Yeah. And yeah. whereas writing, for the most part, is a very solitary effort. Although, you know, the way that you went about it, you did have people that you were interacting with the whole time you were mm-hmm. writing, you know, as, as doing it as part of the MFA program. But the good thing about the it being writing being so solitary is that you're not dependent on somebody else to make it happen. Whereas with filmmaking, you can't make a film all by yourself. <laughs> so is that one of the reasons you think you've ended up moving towards wanting to be a writer rather than a filmmaker? That's a good question. You know, as, as you're saying that, um, it's when it's all on you to get it done, that can actually make it scarier. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, that's if I, true. <laughs> if I was working on a film, I would have a lot of other people, you know, who I was obligated to and, um, and it might even feel more purposeful in that sense, but and some sometimes I guess the the self motivation um, can be hard to draw on. Uh, you know, it's you just really have to enjoy writing. Um, yeah. If the work is is the reward for you, then you're in the right place. And the thing about making movies is I I'm not actually convinced that the on-set experience is the reward. It's actually very miserable. I've worked on a few independent films and you're 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 looking at like a 19-hour day. Oh wow. Like <laughs> and followed by another one, you know, and you're always on your feet. It's it's exhausting. Um I mean the finished result is the point. You know, yeah. the final product. Whereas I think as a writer you really shouldn't sit down envisioning um publication you know if that makes sense i think it it should be about enjoying writing first now for your debut novel to get published by a major publisher is actually quite a um, success you know just right out of the gate so how did that come about uh well i you know, I was very fortunate in grad school uh, to work with Roxanne Gay as my thesis chair. And uh, when I defended my thesis, she asked my permission um, as if I was going to say no, if, <laughs> if it was OK for her to, to tweet about about the project. She tweeted about about my book and she was on a, a couple other thesis committees and tweeted about my friends. And, you know, I said, if you believe in the, in the book, that would be really awesome. And. Um, I was able to secure a representation um, from an agent after that, and um, my agent has just, I guess, all those connections and 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 networking down from from being in the uh, the biz for for so long that when we when we had the novel, you know, in the state that it was ready to be sent to editors, we sent it to essentially Big Five. Uh, publisher editors to start with. So Roxanne Gay, for those who might not be familiar with her, you want to give us a brief bio of um, 
who she is and why <laughs> her tweets matter. I've been following her on Twitter for a long, long time. So. <laughs> I mean, uh, what would be the best way to, to <laughs> label her? She's she's a great writer. She's a great fiction writer in her own right. She was my professor. She was my, my thesis chair. But more broadly, she's, you know, one of the most visible feminist voices, I think, just full stop. Um, she's approaching like a million followers on Twitter because she does make good points about what she, the things she has, you know, something and, to say. Yeah. About. She doesn't hold back. No, she writes, <laughs> she writes for the New York times now. Um, I know she's got some columns. She also has an, her own imprint, Roxanne Gabe books. Um, she does, um, uh, a book club and, and my book's going to be the pick for, for August, which is very oh, wow. surreal. It's very <laughs> exciting to, to be able to say that. Uh, people have been very, everyone's been very nice. Things have all worked <laughs> out so well uh, recently. It's, it's really incredible. That is. Very grateful to everybody. Yeah. So the book comes out July 11th. That's correct. 2023. Um, we're recording this before then, but people may be listening to it subsequently to that. And, um, but you've got, you've got the actual physical copy in hand, probably. I do. It's, it's really, really impressive. Um, I can only hope, you know, that the text lives up to like the, just uh, the presentation of the book (laughs) has made a really, really impressive, you know, artifact. I'm, I'm extremely proud of it. Wow. And you, your your press kit has like amazing blurbs. I'm I don't know if they're the same. Yeah, I'm so lucky. On this book, yeah, we've got Robert Olin Butler, who's a yeah. Pulitzer Prize winning author, writes the Militia House is a stunningly original examination of the enduring darkness, not just in humans' capacity for war, but in our very souls. In these times, particularly, this is a book that speaks importantly to us all. Wow, that is. Um, something a lot to live up to <laughs> i know yeah and i get i get good news like that and, and and those blurbs and i learn about being put on lists as i'm sitting at my desk in my cubicle at work and it's it's awkward and amazing and like i have to stand up and sort of get out go outside and walk around the block just to so, sort of shake it off and you know breathe what is your day job i'm an admissions officer for a unit um on the University of Illinois campus. So mostly answer very basic email questions. And then I uh, process uh, graduate applications to make sure that they're including all of their necessary documents, like letters of recommendation, um, transcripts and things like that. Well, that sounds like a good job for a writer because it's, you're around people in an academic environment. So you've got probably some support for, um, for being a writer in that environment as opposed to working in a gas station or something, <laughs> you know, that, sure. um, but, but it probably doesn't take so much of your kind of mind cells <laughs> that you get, that you're mentally exhausted at the end of right. the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this kind of job is good for, um, any writer who, who thrives on, having the same daily uh, writing routine. Um, so what's your was, writing routine? I don't have one. Oh, <laughs> I do okay. Not have one. I, <laughs> I, uh, I don't have um, 
a regular routine or practice right now other than I meet with a friend and he and I will write um, generally at the same time once a week. And I'll be kind of picking at things that I'm revising. Um, I guess this kind of job doesn't really work for the kind of writer I am. Ah, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Okay, okay, um, okay. And I, I'll just – I'll add this too. Writing every day isn't that important for, to me. I think reading every day is more important. Um, so if I say this job doesn't – isn't working out for my writing as, as well as I wish it did, also, you know, I – I can roll with it. <laughs> I can roll with it at this point. Well, would you – is your goal to be full-time writer? Um, that's that's tough. Uh, I think I would like to teach writing again. I, I taught when I was in grad school. Um, I would like to teach writing because I think I, I derive a, a, a sense of purpose from working with people and helping people um, and – it's purposeful for me to write my own work, but I would like to supplement that with, you know, actually fostering the talent and, and, and efforts of, of younger writers and give back, you know, honestly, the, the way that, that I came up as, as a young writer with all the people um, helping and guiding me. Um, I think, I think that would be really rewarding. So what, what would it take to, to be able to do that? Good question. I, I now have a book and I have a Master of Fine Arts. I think the next step is just casting a really wide net and applying to teach everywhere and anywhere. I've, I've had a limited scope in terms of looking for jobs, partly because of the book. I've been right. busy working on it. And I right. right. uh, think now I'm just kind of waiting for the book to come out, see how that shakes <laughs> out, see what the landscape uh, turns out to be, and then um, go from go from there. You know, really, I, I want to write another book. Uh, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about. As an artist, you're always most excited about the newest thing that you're working on, and um, yeah, looking ahead, it would be great to balance that to to be able to teach, to write, you know, a lot during the summers and do all the grading and and uh, reading of student work during the semesters. That that would be my my goal at at this point. Do you know what the next book will be? Well, I have a um, collection of short fiction that I've been working on that is uh, Marine Corps adjacent, not horror, but also not realistic. Ah. Uh, I do have a couple of not, not military related novels that I'm sort of incubating one of them I've started writing the other one I'm feeling it out I'm the kind of person who likes to to at least know the ending before I start writing do you do uh, you plot it out on paper or just in your head I don't have a system but it seems that it seems what I'm most comfortable with is for a novel trying to know what happens in each chapter and yeah. kind of having a list of the chapters and sort of knowing, trying to estimate how, how long that the book is going to be and how much time um, the reader should be spending in each of these chapters. And I don't do like an actual technical like outline per se, but I have to be somewhat organized. I, I guess I can't, uh, I can't just write um, 
towards something without having a blueprint to some degree. You're not a pantser. No. <laughs> no, maybe more with short fiction. Um, but even then, I tend to not even start writing a short story until I until I know the ending. Yeah. You do you start with plot or do you start with character? That's a good question. I usually start with plot. Actually, uh, I usually will start with some type of a situation that is bizarre or anomalous. And um, a lot of my fiction, a lot of my short fiction that's been published is not really character based. I don't think um, it's more so just kind of love letters to the kinds of sentences that I like to write <laughs> <laughs> with the militia house. Uh, I was very, I was just very concerned with, with plotting it. Um, I think maybe cause I, have probably been influenced by more films than I have novels throughout just the span of my life. And, you know, films are based off of screenplays that are very heavily uh, steeped in conventions and, you know, the beats that come at the, the expected moment. And that standardization, I think, in coming across on the screen has just kind of ingrained um, sort of like a three-act structure in me. And um, it's both fun to, you know, own that, but it's also fun to push back and, and experiment with other, um, you know, types of forms and, and projects. But it is true that story in the end is what binds people together. Mm -hmm. And we do have certain expectations for what is a story. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be a point to it. You can't yep. just start telling me about your trip to the gas station and then turn around and walk away. Right? Yeah, you gotta, yeah. There's got to be something that it amounts to, something you learned or saw. Or, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, that is that is very true. And people are very, people are really self-conscious, I've noticed, about telling stories, too. People will be like, oh, I'm sorry, I takes forever. Like, all the stories I tell are so long. and. Lucky for them, I just so happen to enjoy uh, stories, so I don't ever cut people off. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever something happens that's, like, not fun or uncomfortable or something, as long as I always – and I say this to other people, and they're like, yeah, as long as you can get a good story out of it, sure, it's okay, yeah, I, you know? <laughs> when I got out of grad school, I spent um, a brief few months working in an animal control department just as the clerk at the front desk, only place that would both interview me and hire me within a two-week span after grad school. And um, pretty much the whole time I was miserable, but also thinking like, I don't know, at least, at least when I get out of here, I'll have some stories. I'll have something to, to put on the page. Um, if, if that's, if that's a utility to that experience, I guess. Well, this is just a very brief story. Something happened yesterday when you mentioned animals, and also the you know the dog in your. I, I mm -hmm. wanted to ask about the dog in yeah. the militia house, but I was driving. Um, a friend of mine was driving. I'm in the car. I'm and I got this text and I'm from another friend and telling me that her dog had died that day, and I'm like. Oh, this is really awful. And my friend says, Oh, I don't know what would, I don't know how, I don't think I could handle it if my cat died. And at that very moment, a cat darted in front of the truck and we had, he had to swerve and almost go up oh, on the man. sidewalk at the 
very second that he said that. That's spooky. I know. <laughs> That's a little bit. And much. how often do cats? <laughs> how often do cats run in front of your car? Right. It doesn't happen right. a lot. And then we're coming home later that night, and it happened again. A cat oh my goodness! Ran. It was running along the sidewalk. I go, oh look at that cat running down the sidewalk, and it, just as I said that, it darted in front of the car. Cats are usually smarter than I that. know. Something's in the water, I, I guess. I know. It was weird. <laughs> so anyway, the dog. So yeah. So was this um, dog based on a real a real dog in yeah. Afghanistan? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, uh, in the in the real life instance of encountering this image, um, I was with another person. Uh, but I was not on uh, guard post. I remember we were waiting. We were the the other people in our group were up at the landing zone handling a flight. Me and one other person were down at the FOB, and we were kind of manning our radio and logging everything that that they told us over the radio. And um, just out of out of nowhere, this dog came out of the dark, and I could not tell what I was looking at at first. Uh, with regard to the dog's face until it just dawned on me like, whoa, this is, I had never seen anything like it. And I mean, I mean, if you've seen Homeward Bound, there's a scene with the dog having porcupine quills that this is absolutely 180 degrees away from that. These porcupine quills are longer than the end of my middle finger to the, to like the edge of my wrist. And they are as big around as like a pen. I remember oh when my. my agent first read this, she was having a hard time. She was like, why is the character freaking out so much? These it's just porcupine quills, right? I really had to drive home. These are nothing like you've ever seen before. Um, and that image was just haunting. And it's like, what are we? Yeah, what are we supposed to do? This dog has been injured. And, uh, and then the dog just eventually walked away and we never saw it again. And I did find um, one of those quills. And I took a photo of it in my hand. Just I should have tried to bring it home or mail it home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, yeah. you know. But without the photo, I was like, no one is ever, ever gonna believe. So they're really size of these like it's a different breed of porcupine. It is. I the the exact um the the exact one escapes me, but it is native to to the Middle East, and it's got a big. Uh, I never saw one of them myself, but they have a big tail that they kind of like. Um, curve over their head like a scorpion tail almost um it's really vicious and scary looking <laughs> oh wow john would you like to read from the militia house for us sure yeah i'll read um a couple pages here um the only thing i guess to provide in terms of context is some of the names you'll hear are the characters um siblings or friends and um this is a scene where after some supernatural things have happened, the war, the danger of the war sort of um, reveals itself again uh, to the characters. And at this point, they're on a helicopter and it's about to land. And the narrator has almost no idea what he is supposed to do or what's about to happen. The helicopter drops like an elevator and my mind drifts away. I'm in preschool riding blue tricycles up and down the sidewalk with Bryce and Claire I mold a blue and green Tyrannosaurus Rex out of clay. I take trips to the dunes in Michigan and make sandcastles on the beach, visit a farm and feed a brown and white horse out of my hand, go fishing in a pond and watch my uncle Hank rip their guts out on a table covered in flies. 
I'm bouncing a basketball against a wooden gym floor, catching a baseball in a glove, throwing it back to my friend Tyler. Smudged pencil sketches of Ninja Turtles on notebook paper, Lego pieces dropping down a heat register, math tests, spelling tests, science tests, detention for writing swear words in school library books, a hot shower at home, a long hot shower, losing almost every track race in high school because of shin splints or because I was just slow, kissing Natalie in the bar at the barn dance freshman year of college, then going a little farther than kissing Natalie after the barn dance, wondering what she's doing now, probably studying for the LSAT or maybe even skipping class or sleeping in late on a Saturday with someone else who went farther than kissing her the night before. I see my mother's face as I leave for boot camp, my father's head on stare as he tells me that someday I will finally need to finish something uh, something I start if I ever want to grow up and be a man. My sister's innocent smile, my brother's waxen face disappearing in the shadow of a closing casket lid, his eagle globe and anchor pin clutched in my fingers and then flung in a rage into the woods behind our house. Everything that has happened to me has been a waste. What does it matter if someone ever loved me? That won't help. I imagine someone at a desk making the decision that puts me in this exact place at this exact moment. That person has no idea who I am or where I am now. I think clear tip, blurry target, clear tip, blurry target. This is what they train you to think on the range when you shoot at targets shaped like people. You have to stop thinking about death and start thinking about area targets and point targets and breathing control. You have to shut off everything about yourself. The bird hits the deck and my head jolts forward. The ramp drops to the dirt and I feel an ugliness inside my body pushing me towards something inevitable. I tap my finger against the side of my rifle trigger as if to the rhythm of a marching cadence, and I unclip the seatbelt. Let's go, the lieutenant shouts, waving us out of the bird. We charge into the desert. I run down the ramp and break around the right side, of, uh, around the right side with Blount behind me. The sight of my boot touching the ground makes me wonder if the last thing Bryce saw before blowing up was his own boot or if he died lying on his back watching birds and clouds. The sky is clear today as I run through a dust cloud flung up by the main rotor, trying not to step on a rock the wrong way and roll my ankle, trying not to step on an old landmine. I press the buttstock of the rifle tight into my shoulder, looking just above the ACOG scope. I let the rifle barrel lead me. I can barely see through my goggles on a good, on a good day, not to mention when the air is full of dust as it is now. We can't see anything yet. If I die right now, I won't even know where I've been shot from. I wonder when the shooting will start, and I think clear tip, blurry target, I imagine the dust clearing to reveal a cloud of armed men waiting for us. <clears throat> then, as we run, the dust clears. Thank you. And that was John Milas reading from the Belisha House. That was another, you know, something that kind of surprised me about, you know, that I learned about the military is um, not all soldiers really shoot their weapons very often or or even practice with them or because what right before this didn't he say something about it been a year since he done yeah did rifle rifle qualification yeah yeah and and a month since he cleaned his we have this image of it's all about the guns (laughs) but Mm -hmm. but in reality it's not at least for a lot of soldiers yeah, in the in the Marine Corps, um, I mean, <clears throat> one of the differences, I guess, is everybody does the same uh, rifle qualification with an M16 at, at 500 yards, and everybody, even before they go to their, like, if you're not infantry, 
everyone goes to a separate month of combat training before you go to your job school. So in Afghanistan, I think Jarhead is a really great example of, of, of the way that, you know, people in combat arms, um, cause these guys are snipers and Jarhead, they get really pent up when they have nothing to do when they've been trained to, to shoot in the Marine Corps. There's, there's not quite that, but still somewhat similar, I think to some degree, you know, with this mentality that every Marine is a rifleman is, is sort of like the slogan. Um, <clears throat> you kind of feel a little pur- purposeless, you know, if you're never actually using your, your rifle in a war, uh, even though we were logisticians um, by training. And, and, and the thing to add that a lot of people don't know, uh, in 2010, and I, I mean, when I was there, this was the case. I think things might have changed later. They might have been different before. But when we were on base, we were not to have our weapons loaded at all. They were to be completely unloaded. That doesn't mean you leave it in a rack or something. You are always carrying it. You always have your rifle. Some people even slept with them in their sleeping bags. There is no one else responsible for having accountability of it. But it was really ironic to me that we were walking around with, with like unloaded M16s in a war. You know, obviously when you go off outside the wire, if you go on a convoy or a patrol or something, then you would insert a magazine. But very surprising. Um, standard operating procedure for us <laughs> to learn of when we first got there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is fascinating. So the job that, that your characters have is basically loading and unloading helicopters. Yeah. The, the, I was a landing support specialist and the, the MOS code for that is 0481. And there are def- definitely a lot of things that, this book doesn't talk about with regard to that job in Afghanistan uh, primarily our job was to do the external lifts with helicopters if they needed to pick something up and carry it away our job is to stand underneath it ground out the static electricity and attach the load and then it flies away and then your nose is full of dust for the next however many days and uh, then our other job was to be sort of in the I don't know what you would want to call it, the operations center of a flight line. Um, at, at the second and third base I was at, it was this was just helicopters. And at Camp Leatherneck slash Camp Bastion, we were also working with C-130s because the Marine Corps has their own uh, C-130s. Um, what are C-130s? A C-130 is a, a, a four-propeller cargo plane. That is, uh, it's been around for a really long time, maybe since Vietnam or so. And um, I think they have variations of them that carry cargo and others that have weaponry on them that will shoot down from high altitudes. And it's uh, it's kind of a small, stubby-looking plane when you see all these other giant cargo planes on the runway that, uh, <laughs> that the Air Force uses. And um, it's not a comfortable ride either. I, when we were leaving Afghanistan, we flew on a C-130, and we thought it was going to be nicer because it was an Air Force one. And uh, <clears throat> it was a rough ride. We oh. flew from, I don't know, <laughs> Camp Leatherneck up to Bahrain or something, and not exactly, thankfully got on a different plane, I think. <laughs> not exactly first class. Huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> very, very loud, too. you, you got to wear earplugs if you're on these on these vehicles, especially the, the helicopters. Well, the scene where where, where they are uh, doing the external lift mm-hmm. and um, 
the character, I think maybe it's Johnson, who isn't really part of that team, but the right. lieutenant says, make right. him do it anyway. He's and, a forklift driver, but he's an extra body, you know? So yeah. He's gotta, and gotta things like that happen. Yeah. Every now and then, uh, there would be, there would be a need. Um, when I, you know, the first two months we were there, I think we found out pretty quick our platoon really wasn't big enough to cover what we were expected to cover. So in my in my job, I was sort of the operations chief on this 12-hour shift. They never would have called me the operations chief because I was a low rank. Oh. Um, but I was the operations <laughs> marine okay. uh, for, for this 12-hour shift. And we didn't have any NCOs. We didn't have any corporals or sergeants. And so eventually they found someone from um, – the the bulk fuelers in our I think it was in our battalion not in our company though and they pulled him and one of the other folks from his platoon over to help us so they had to learn a brand new job that they hadn't trained for in their workups because we didn't have enough people which oh. is really ironic because this was during a troop search oh my <laughs> and it's dangerous what you were doing if you don't know what you're doing in his doing. case in his case, at least, he was just kind of working in an office and, and marshalling passengers and such. Okay. But, yeah, if you were standing underneath the helicopter, um, you would really need to take the training seriously for someone who who didn't who didn't know what to expect. You know, no, no one I've ever met ha- has expected that there was – that there is static electricity that builds up that could kill you, actually. Yeah. Not super, kill yeah. you. Um, well – Electricity can sneak up on you in mm-hmm. ways. I recently, um, you know, my day job, I'm a, I run a manufacturing company, and at one at our location in Mexico, um, one our one of our maintenance guys was trying to fix a broken microwave, and it was unplugged, it wasn't plugged in, but the capacitor carries such a charge that he got electrocuted. Yikes. It's horrible. It was horrible. And he was, you know, wearing the gloves. He was grounded and everything, but it was still um, not, yeah. For <laughs> us, uh, if we did those lifts at night, you could see the see actual the sparks. spark going, f- you know, from the hook to the uh, static one, actually. It was wow. really, really, <laughs> that's a sobering moment to see that and yeah. to not have the static one yourself. And to be trusting, you know, the other, the other guy with that to to, to do keep it safe. right, yeah, yeah, to do it right. Well, John, we're out of time, and I want to thank you so much for being with us here today on Writers Voices. This book is um, a fascinating look at what it really is like in war, but with this whole Gothic horror supernatural um, angle as well, that makes it even more intriguing. So. Congratulations. It was Thank um, you. Thank yeah. you so much for for <laughs> the kind words and for having me and for reading and and everything. Oh, you're very welcome. And we always end with a quote and uh, so the quote I found today is from John Steinbeck. All war is a symptom of man's failure as a thinking animal. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So thank you and see you next week. Bye.